Chapter Five of the Nigger of the Narcissus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Nigger of the Narcissus by Joseph Conrad. Chapter Five, Part Two. Duncan chafed at the peace, at the ship, at the sea that stretching away on all sides merged into the illimitable silence of all creation. He felt himself pulled up sharp by unrecognized grievances. He had been physically cowed, but his injured dignity remained indomitable, and nothing could heal his lacerated feelings. Here was land already, home very soon, a bad payday, no clothes, more hard work. How offensive all this was! Land. The land that draws away life from sick sailors. That nigger there had money, clothes, easy times, and would not die land draws life away he felt tempted to go and see whether it did perhaps already it would be a bit of luck there was money in the beggar's chest he stepped briskly out of the shadows into the moonlight and instantly his craving hungry face from shallow became livid he opened the door of the cabin and had a shock sure enough jimmy was dead he moved no more than a recumbent figure with clasped hands carved on the lid of a stone coffin. Duncan glared with avidity. Then Jimmy, without stirring, blinked his eyelids, and Duncan had another shock. Those eyes were rather startling. He shut the door behind his back with gentle care, looking intently the while at James Waite, as though he had come in there at a great risk to tell some secret of startling importance. Jimmy did not move, but glanced languidly out of the corner of his eyes. Calm? he asked. Yes, said Duncan, very disappointed, and sat down on the box. Jimmy was used to such visits at all times of night, of day. Men succeeded one another. They spoke in clear voices, pronounced cheerful words, repeated old jokes, listened to him and each, going out, seemed to leave behind a little of his own vitality, surrender some of his own strength, renew the assurance of life, the indestructible thing. He did not like to be left alone in his cabin, because, when he was alone, it seemed to him as if he hadn't been there at all. There was nothing, no pain, not now perfectly right but he couldn't enjoy his healthy repose unless someone was by to see it this man would do as well as anybody duncan watched him stealthily soon home now observed Waite. vy dear whisper said duncan with interest can't yer speak up jimmy looked annoyed and said nothing for a while then in a lifeless unringing voice why should i shout you ain't deaf that i know "'Oh, I can ear right enough,' answered Donkin, in a low tone, and looked down. He was thinking sadly of going out when Jimmy spoke again. "'Time we did get home, to get something decent to eat. I am always hungry.' Donkin felt angry all of a sudden. "'What about me?' he hissed. "'I am hungry, too, and got to work.' "'You, hungry?' "'Your work won't kill you,' commented Waite feebly. "'There's a couple of biscuits in the lower bunk there. "'You may have one. I can't eat them.' "'Duncan dived in, groped in the corner, "'and when he came up again his mouth was full. "'He munched with ardor. 
Jimmy seemed to doze with open eyes. Duncan finished his hard bread and got up. "'You're not going?' asked Jimmy, staring at the ceiling. "'No,' said Duncan impulsively, and instead of going out, leaned his back against the closed door. He looked at James Waite and saw him long, lean, dried up, as though all his flesh had shriveled on his bones in the heat of a white furnace. The meager fingers of one hand moved lightly upon the edge of the bunk, playing an endless tune. To look at him was irritating and fatiguing. He could last like this for days. He was outrageous, belonging wholly neither to death nor life, and perfectly invulnerable in his apparent ignorance of both. Duncan felt tempted to enlighten him. "'What are you thinking of?' he asked, surlily. James Waite had a grimacing smile that passed over the death-like impassiveness of his bony face, incredible and frightful as would, in a dream, have been the sudden smile of a corpse. "'There is a girl,' whispered Waite, "'Canton Street girl. She chucked a third engineer of a Rennie boat. For me. Cooks oysters just as I like. She says she would chuck.' any tough, louder. Duncan could hardly believe his ears. He was scandalized. Would she? You wouldn't be any good to her, he said with unrestrained disgust. Wait was not there to hear him. He was swaggering up East India Dock Road, saying kindly, Come along for a treat, pushing glass swing doors, posing with superb assurance in the gaslight above a mahogany counter. "'Do you think your will ever get ashore?' asked Duncan, angrily. Waite came back with a start. Ten days,' he said promptly, and returned at once to the regions of memory that know nothing of time. He felt untired, calm, and safely withdrawn within himself beyond the reach of every grave incertitude. There was something of the immutable quality of eternity in the slow moments of his complete restfulness. He was very quiet and easy amongst his vivid reminiscences, which he mistook joyfully for the images of an undoubted future. He cared for no one. Duncan felt this vaguely, like a blind man, feeling in his darkness the fatal antagonism of all the surrounding existences, that to him shall forever remain unrealizable, unseen, and enviable. He had the desire to assert his importance, to break, to crush, to be even with everybody for everything, to tear the veil, unmask, expose, leave no refuge, a perfidious desire of truthfulness. He laughed in a mocking splutter and said, Ten days, strike me blind if lever. You will be dead by this time tomorrow, perhaps. Ten days. He waited for a while. Do you hear me? Blame me if you don't look dead already. Wait must have been collecting the strength, for he said almost aloud, You're a stinking, cadging liar. Everyone knows you. And sitting up, against all probability, startled his visitor horribly. But very soon Duncan recovered himself. He blustered. What? What? Who's a liar? You are. The crowd are. The skipper. Everybody. I ain't. Putting on airs. Who's your? He nearly choked himself with indignation. 
"'Who's yer to put on airs?' he repeated, trembling. "'Ave one, ave one,' says e, "'and can't eat em isself. "'Now I'll ave both. "'By God I will. "'You're nobody.' "'He plunged into the lower bunk, "'brooded in there, "'and brought to light another dusty biscuit. "'He held it up before Jimmy, "'then took a bite defiantly. "'What now?' he asked, "'with feverish impudence. "'Yer may take one,' says yer. "'Why not get me both?' no i'm a mangy dorg one for a mangy dorg i'll tyke both can yer stop me try come on try jimmy was clasping his legs and hiding his face on the knees his shirt clung to him every rib was visible his emaciated back was shaken in repeated jerks by the panting catches of his breath yer won't yer can't what did i say went on donkin fiercely he swallowed another dry mouthful with a hasty effort. The other's silent helplessness, his weakness, his shrinking attitude exasperated him. "'You're done,' he cried. "'Who's you're to be lied to, to be waited on, and in foot like a bloomin' amper? You're nobody. You're no one at all,' he spluttered with such a strength of unerring conviction that it shook him from head to foot in coming out and left him vibrating like a released string. James Waite rallied again. He lifted his head and turned bravely at Donkin, who saw a strange face, an unknown face, a fantastic and grimacing mask of despair and fury. Its lips moved rapidly, and hollow, moaning, whistling sounds filled the cabin with a vague mutter full of menace, complaint, and desolation, like a far-off murmur of a rising wind. Waite shook his head, rolled his eyes. He denied, cursed, threatened, and not a word had the strength to pass beyond the sorrowful pout of those black lips. It was incomprehensible and disturbing, a gibberish of emotions, a frantic dumb show of speech pleading for impossible things, promising a shadowy vengeance. It sobered Duncan into a scrutinizing watchfulness. "'Yer can't holler, see? What did I tell yer?' he said slowly, after a moment of attentive examination. The other kept on headlong and unheard, nodding passionately, grinning with grotesque and appalling flashes of big white teeth. Duncan, as if fascinated by the dumb eloquence and anger of that black phantom, approached, stretching his neck out with distrustful curiosity, and it seemed to him suddenly that he was looking only at the shadow of a man crouching high in the bunk on the level with his eyes. What? What? he said. He seemed to catch the shape of some words in the continuous panning hiss. Yer will tell Belfast, will yer? Are yer a bloomin' kid? He trembled with alarm and rage. Tell yer grandmother, you're afeard. Who's yer to be afeard more'n anyone? His passionate sense of his own importance ran away with the last remnant of caution. Tell and be damned. Tell if you can, he cried. I've been treated worse'n a dog by your bloomin' backlickers. They has set me on only to turn against me. I am the only man ere. They clouded me, kicked me, and you're laughed. Your black rotten encumbrance, you, you will pay for it. 
They give you their grub, their water. Your will pay for it to me, by God. Who asked me to have a drink of water? They put their bloomin' rags on yer that night, and what did they give ter me? A cloud on the bloomin' mouth. Blast their... S'elp me. You will pay for it with your money. I'm going to have it in a minute, as soon as you're dead, you bloomin' useless fraud. That's the man I am. And you're a thane, a bloody thane. Yeah, you corpse. He flung at Jimmy's head the biscuit he had been all the time clutching hard, but it only grazed, and striking with a loud crack the bulkhead beyond, burst like a hand grenade into flying pieces. James Wade, as if wounded mortally, fell back on the pillow. His lips ceased to move, and the rolling eyes became quiet and stared upwards with an intense and steady persistence. Duncan was surprised. He sat suddenly on the chest and looked down, exhausted and gloomy. After a moment, he began to mutter to himself, Die, you beggar, die. Somebody'll come in. I wish I was drunk. Ten days. Oysters. He looked up and spoke louder. No, no more for yer. No more bloomin' gals that cook oysters. Who's yer? It's my turn now. I wish I was drunk. I would soon give you a leg up. That's where you're bound to go. Feet fuss through a port. Splash. Never see yer any more. Overboard. Good enough for yer. Jimmy's head moved slightly, and he turned his eyes to Donkin's face, a gaze unbelieving, desolated and appealing, of a child frightened by the menace of being shut up alone in the dark. Donkin observed him from the chest with hopeful eyes, then, without rising, tried the lid. Locked. I wish I was drunk, he muttered, and getting up listened anxiously to the distant sound of footsteps on the deck. They approached ceased. Someone yawned interminably just outside the door, and the footsteps went away shuffling lazily. Duncan's fluttering heart eased its pace, and when he looked towards the bunk again, Jimmy was staring as before at the white beam. "'How are your feel now?' he asked. "'Bad,' breathed out Jimmy. Duncan sat down patient and purposeful. Every half-hour the bells spoke to one another, ringing along the whole length of the ship. Jimmy's respiration was so rapid that it couldn't be counted, so faint that it couldn't be heard. His eyes were terrified as though he had been looking at unspeakable horrors, and by his face one could see that he was thinking of abominable things. Suddenly, with an incredibly strong and heart-breaking voice, he sobbed out, "'Overboard!' Aye, my God! Duncan writhed a little on the box. He looked unwillingly. James Waite was mute. His two long bony hands smoothed the blanket upwards, as though he had wished to gather it all up under his chin. A tear, a big solitary tear, escaped from the corner of his eye and without touching the hollow cheek, fell on the pillow. His throat rattled faintly. And Duncan, watching the end of that hateful nigger, felt the anguishing grasp of a great sorrow in his heart at the thought that he himself, some day, would have to go through it all, just like this, perhaps.
His eyes became moist. Poor beggar, he murmured. The night seemed to go by in a flash. It seemed to him he could hear the irremediable brush of precious moments. How long would this blooming affair last? Too long, surely. No luck. He did not restrain himself. He got up and approached the bunk. Wait did not stir. Only his eyes appeared alive, and his hands continued their smoothing movement with a horrible and tireless industry. Duncan bent over. Jimmy, he called low. There was no answer, but the rattle stopped. Do you see me? he asked, trembling. Jimmy's chest heaved. Duncan, looking away, bent his ear to Jimmy's lips and heard a sound like the rustle of a single dry leaf driven along the smooth sand of a beach. It shaped itself. Light, the lamp, and go, breathed out weight. Duncan instinctively glanced over his shoulder at the brilliant flame, then, still looking away, felt under the pillow for a key. He got it at once, and for the next few minutes remained on his knees shakily, but swiftly busy inside the box. When he got up, his face, for the first time in his life, had a pink flush, perhaps of triumph. He slipped the key under the pillow again, avoiding to glance at Jimmy, who had not moved. He turned his back squarely from the bunk, and started to the door as though he were going to walk a mile. At his second stride he had his nose against it. He clutched the handle cautiously, but at that moment he received the irresistible impression of something happening behind his back. He spun round as though he had been tapped on the shoulder. He was just in time to see Waite's eyes blaze up and go out at once, like two lamps overturned together by a sweeping blow. Something resembling the scarlet thread hung down his chin out of the corner of his lips, and he had ceased to breathe. Duncan closed the door behind him gently but firmly. Sleeping men, huddled under jackets, made on the lighted deck shapeless dark mounds that had the appearance of neglected graves. Nothing had been done all through the night, and he hadn't been missed. He stood motionless and perfectly astounded to find the world outside as he had left it. There was the sea, the ship, sleeping men, and he wondered absurdly at it, as though he had expected to find the men dead, familiar things gone forever, as though, like a wanderer returning after many years, he had expected to see bewildering changes. He shuddered a little in the penetrating freshness of the air, and hugged himself forlornly. The declining moon drooped sadly in the western board, as if withered by the cold touch of a pale dawn. The ship slept, and the immortal sea stretched away immense and hazy, like the image of life, with a glittering surface and lightless depths. Duncan gave it a defiant glance, and slunk off noiselessly as if judged and cast out by the august silence of its might. Jimmy's death, after all, came as a tremendous surprise. We did not know till then how much faith we had put in his delusions. We had taken his chances of life so much at his own valuation that his death, like the death of an old belief, shook the foundations of our society. A common bond was gone, 
the strong effective and respectable bond of a sentimental lie all that day we mooned at our work with suspicious looks and a disabused air in our hearts we thought that in the manner of his departure jimmy had acted in a perverse and unfriendly manner he didn't back us up as a shipmate should in going he took away with himself the gloomy and solemn shadow in which our folly had posed with humane satisfaction as a tender arbiter of fate and now we saw it was no such thing it was just common foolishness a silly and ineffectual meddling with issues of majestic import that is if podmore was right perhaps he was doubt survived jimmy and like a community of banded criminals disintegrated by a touch of grace we were profoundly scandalized with each other men spoke unkindly to their best chums others refused to speak at all singleton only was not surprised dead is he of course he said pointing at the island right abeam for the calm still held the ship spellbound within sight of Flores. Dead, of course. He wasn't surprised. Here was the land, and there, on the forehatch and waiting for the sailmaker, there was that corpse. Cause and effect. And for the first time that voyage, the old seaman became quite cheery and garrulous, explaining and illustrating from the stores of experience how, in sickness, the sight of an island, even a very small one, is generally more fatal than the view of a continent. But he couldn't explain why. Jimmy was to be buried at five, and it was a long day till then, a day of mental disquiet and even of physical disturbance. We took no interest in our work, and, very properly, were rebuked for it this in our constant state of hungry irritation was exasperating duncan worked with his brow bound in a dirty rag and looked so ghastly that mr baker was touched with compassion at the sight of this plucky suffering ach you duncan put down your work and go lay up this watch you look ill i am bad sir in my ed he said in a subdued voice and vanished speedily this annoyed many, and they thought the mate bloomin' soft to-day. Captain Alliston could be seen on the poop watching the sky to the southwest, and it soon got to be known about the decks that the barometer had begun to fall in the night, and that a breeze might be expected before long. This, by a subtle association of ideas, led to violent quarrelling as to the exact moment of Jimmy's death. Was it before or after? that air glass started down it was impossible to know and it caused much contemptuous growling at one another all of a sudden there was a great tumult forward pacific knolls and good-natured davis had come to blows over it the watch below interfered with spirit and for ten minutes there was a noisy scrimmage round the hatch where in the balancing shade of the sails jimmy's body wrapped up in a white blanket was watched over by the sorrowful belfast who in his desolation disdained the fray when the noise had ceased and the passions had calmed into surly silence he stood up at the head of the swathed body 
lifting both arms on high, cried with pain indignation, "'You ought to be ashamed of yourselves.' We were. Belfast took his bereavement very hard. He gave proofs of inextinguishable devotion. It was he, and no other man, who would help the sailmaker to prepare what was left of Jimmy for a solemn surrender to the insatiable sea. He arranged the weights carefully at the feet, two holy stones, an old anchor shackle without its pin, some broken links of a worn-out stream cable. He arranged them this way, then that. "'Bless my soul, you aren't afraid he will chafe his heel,' said the sailmaker, who hated the job. He pushed the needle, purring furiously, with his head in a cloud of tobacco smoke. He turned the flaps over, pulled at the stitches, stretched at the canvas. Lift his shoulders. Pull to you a bit. So. Steady. Belfast obeyed, pulled, lifted, overcome with sorrow, dropping tears on the tarred twine. "'Don't you drag the canvas too taut over his poor face, Sales,' he entreated tearfully. "'What are you fashioning yourself for? He will be comfortable enough,' assured the sailmaker, cutting the thread after the last stitch, which came about the middle of Jimmy's forehead. He rolled up the remaining canvas, put away the needles. "'What makes you take on so?' he asked. Belfast looked down at a long package of grey sailcloth. I pulled him out, he whispered, and he did not want to go. If I had sat up with him last night, he would have kept alive for me, but something made me tired. The sailmaker took vigorous draws at his pipe and mumbled, when I, West India Station, and the Blanche frigate, Yellow Jack, sewed in twenty men a week, Portsmouth Devonport men, townies, knew their fathers, mothers, sisters, the whole boiling of em. Thought nothing of it. And these niggers like this one, you don't know where it comes from. Got nobody. No use to nobody. Who will miss him? I do. I pulled him out, mourned Belfast dismally. On two planks nailed together, and apparently resigned and still under the folds of the Union Jack with a white border, James Waite, carried aft by four men, was deposited slowly, with his feet pointing at an open port. A swell had set in from the westward, and following on the roll of the ship, the red ensign, at half-mast, darted out and collapsed again on the gray sky, like a tongue of flickering fire, Charlie told the bell, and at every swing to starboard the whole vast semicircle of steely waters visible on that side seemed to come up with a rush to the edge of the port, as if impatient to get at our Jimmy. Everyone was there but Duncan, who was too ill to come. The captain and Mr. Crichton stood bareheaded on the break of the poop, Mr. Baker directed by the master who had said to him gravely, "'You know more about the prayer book than I do,' came out of the cabin door quickly and a little embarrassed. All the caps went off. He began to read in a low tone, and with his usual harmlessly menacing utterance, as though he had been for the last time reproving confidentially that dead seaman at his feet. The men listened in scattered groups, 
they leaned on the fife rail gazing on the deck they held their chins in their hands thoughtfully or with crossed arms and one knee slightly bent hung their heads in an attitude of upright meditation wamibo dreamed mr baker read on grunting reverently at the turn of every page the words missing the unsteady hearts of men rolled out to wander without a home upon the heartless sea and james wait silenced forever lay uncritical and passive under the hoarse murmur of despair and hopes two men made ready and waited for those words that sent so many of our brothers to their last plunge mr baker began the passage stand by muttered the boatswain mr baker read out to the deep and paused the men lifted the inboard end of the planks the boatswain snatched off the union jack and james wait did not move higher muttered the boatswain angrily all the heads were raised every man stirred uneasily but james wait gave no sign of going in death and swathed up for all eternity he yet seemed to cling to the ship with the grip of an undying fear higher lift whispered the boatswain fiercely he won't go stammered one of the men shakily and both appeared ready to drop everything mr baker waited burying his face in the book and shuffling his feet nervously all the men looked profoundly disturbed from their midst a faint humming noise spread out growing louder jimmy cried belfast in a wailing tone and there was a second of shuddering dismay jimmy be a man he shrieked passionately every mouth was wide open not an eyelid winked he stared wildly twitching all over he bent his body forward like a man peering at a horror go he shouted and sprang out of the crowd with his arm extended go jimmy jimmy go go his fingers touched the head of the body and the gray package started reluctantly to whiz off the lifted planks all at once with the suddenness of a flash of lightning the crowd stepped forward like one man a deep ah came out vibrating from the broad chests the ship rolled as if relieved of an unfair burden the sails flapped belfast supported by archie gasped hysterically and charlie who anxious to see jimmy's last dive leaped headlong on a rail was too late to see anything but the faint circle of a vanishing ripple mr baker perspiring abundantly read out the last prayer in a deep rumour of excited men and fluttering sails amen he said in an unsteady growl and closed the book square the yards thundered a voice above his head all hands gave a jump one or two dropped their caps mr baker looked up surprised the master standing on the break of the poop pointed to the westward breeze coming he said man the weather braces mr baker crammed the book hurriedly into his pocket forward there let go the foretack he hailed joyfully bareheaded and brisk square the foreyard you port watch fair wind fair wind muttered the men going to the braces what did i tell you mumbled old singleton flinging down coil after coil with hasty energy i knowed it 
He's gone, and here it comes. It came with the sound of a lofty and powerful sigh. The sails filled, the ship gathered way, and the waking sea began to murmur sleepily of home to the ears of men. That night, while the ship rushed foaming to the northward before a freshening gale, the boatswain unbosomed himself to the petty officer's berth. The chap was nothing but trouble, he said, from the moment he came aboard. Do you remember? That night in Bombay. Been bullying all that softy crowd, cheek the old man. We had to go fooling all over a half-drowned ship to save him. Damn nigh a mutiny all for him, and now the mate abused me like a pickpocket for forgetting to dab a lump of grease on them planks. So I did, but you ought to have known better, too, than to leave a nail sticking up, eh, Chips? And you ought to have known better than chuck all my tools overboard for him, like a scary greenhorn, retorted the morose carpenter. Well, he's gone after him now, he added in an unforgiving tone. On the China station, I remember once, the admiral, he says to me, began the sailmaker. End of chapter 5, part 2